Synchronicity in our romantic lives is often a signpost pointing us in that direction. While it may not indicate the blessing of a relationship, it almost always directs us toward pieces of ourselves that we need to reclaim to become more whole. These pieces might be recovered through loving, but they may also sometimes be recovered by leaving the relationship. I know you know that I made those mistakes maybe once or twice. By once or twice, I mean maybe a couple hundred times. So let me, oh, let me redeem myself tonight, because I need just one more shot at second chances. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles, and it's never too late to say sorry. Happy New Year, or it will be when you hear this. For me, it's Monday, December 28th, 2015, and this, of course, is 42 Minutes. Rest in peace, Lemmy. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today we will ask if we can drop our ego's agenda and still feel the wonder of being alive in a world filled with such mysterious, mischievous, and occasionally unpetty meaning-making magic. And we'll do so with author and international speaker Gary Bobroff. Bob Ruff is the founder of JungianOnline.com, the developer and facilitator of Archetypal Nature, and author of Crop Circles, Young and the Reemergence of the Archetypal Feminine. He is a certified administrator of the Meyer Briggs Type Indicator and a board member of Depth Psychology Alliance. In 2014, he envisioned and produced the Synchronicity Matter and Psyche Symposium in Joshua Tree, California, which which featured Rupert Sheldrake and Graham Hancock, among others. More information about his work can be found at his website, gsbobroff.com. I should also note that a free online introduction to archetypal nature will be authored Thursday, January 7th, 2016, at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. More information about this can be found at his at the website archetypalnature.com. It's an honor and pleasure to be meeting Bob Roth this evening. How are you doing tonight, Gary? I'm great. Thank you for that introduction and from um, reading a little bit from my article on synchronicity and romantic fate. Yeah, so that's that's where I, I want to start. But uh, interestingly enough, I I had no idea that you were the producer behind the Matter and Psyche Symposium. Uh, in 2014. Yeah. Yeah, that's right up your alley, huh? Well, here's the synchronicity is that we had our own event the same weekend in Olympia, Washington. Aha. So it was, we were torn because here was this really cool thing, but it was happening the exact same time. That, oh, too bad. Yeah. So how, yeah. how did it go? It went great. It went great. And that was the only weekend that that could be on because that's the only weekend that um, Rupert, you know, Rupert doesn't like to do too many gigs. So that was the only weekend he could do it. So there we go. Yeah. It, it was incredible. You know, it was really be a beautiful experience and, um, you know, a challenging experience and a wonderful experience. I think, you know, I had a bit of a different viewpoint on it than the people that were there. You know, for me, it was a lot of work, but um, the people that were there just had amazing things to say. Um, you know, one of the things that was r repeatedly most moving for me was to have things like, you know, it's a little stereotypical, but to have husbands coming up saying, 
you know, I wouldn't have even gone to this, you know, but my wife dragged me here and it's changed my um, view of the world. And um, so, you know, that's a pretty big compliment. And I, I think what I wanted to do with that event was to offer up the speakers around synchronicity and the extension of consciousness that are really grounded doing objective work like Rupert, you know, that your listeners will know about his work. And people that are actually looking at the extension of consciousness in a really grounded, objective way. And then to have them all in, in one place in one weekend, we had Rick Tarnas there too and Dr. Jim B. Tucker and people like that. And to have them all there really gave people a whole bunch of evidence all at once of saying this myth that the dominant institutions teach folks that that the brain is consciousness is is you know it's just wrong there's there's too much evidence against it and and so that was my experience was was hearing that and being able to share that with people and to envision that and pull it off you know it feels like feels like uh, I did something right so wonderful i mean one of the things we've experienced is that oftentimes when we get a little bit of density so a lot of like-minded individuals together that it almost begins to kind of generate synchronicity did you have any experiences mm. like that <laughs> oh wow well you know that's such a good question um i mean i think on some level that you know even to have something like that come together uh requires a hidden hand and a hidden uh, you know, blessings along the way to make it happen. But, you know, I don't know that there probably is. I can't think of one right at this moment, but synchronicity is certainly a big part of my day-to-day -day life. Well, so it's it's fascinating because the article that um, somebody shared with me, and so here's my synchronicity for this interview, is that uh, North Atlantic had sent me your book a long time, and it looked a long time ago, say, right when it came out, I think was, um, was it 2013 or 2014? Yeah, 2014. Yeah, and so I've had it, but I end up reading the thing that I'm doing the show of, and I, I, it went to the bottom of the pile, and I never got back to it. Yeah. <laughs> but then somebody shared this great article that you did, and, and the name just kind of tickled me, and I thought, huh, that I wonder about – and it reminded me of that book at the bottom of the pile, and so mm. then I went and fished it out, and it was the same name. And so I thought, all right, well, <laughs> there it goes, but – the thing I liked about your article was that it's like synchronicity for grown-ups or adults <laughs> even, where yeah. there's agency involved in this. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's my whole thing with the conference and with that article, which is called Synchronicity and Romantic Fate, um, is that, you know, in the Jungian world, uh, which is the world that, that I, the tradition that I come from, um, you know, synchronicity always isn't always seen as a blessing. You know, it shows the involvement of the gods, you might say. But which gods? You know, and there's lots of mischief gods, and there's certainly malefic and negative uh, forces in the in the pantheons of the gods of the different you know traditions. Uh, and so there can be an, a, a, a you know a play of shadow happening with synchronicity. And it can be tragic, and it can go on and on, and it can be a way that we recreate our wounds. And, you know, I mean, it isn't always this positive thing that people associate it with. And, you know, it was the same thing for me with synchronicity. It's like there's a, the conference, the symposium. There was, there's so much out there 
about synchronicity that is uh, kind of new agey and ungrounded. And there's very few things that really bring in the dark side. And, you know, the whole West Coast, you know, consciousness culture tends to be very up and light and bright and rejecting the shadow and spiritual bypassing and all that. So, you know, to start having, a, as you say, an adult conversation uh, about these things is, is really what I want to do in my work. And that's what I do in a lot of the different things that I do with synchronicity, whether it's uh, webinars or the conference. And I think um, ultimately we, we are being called at this time to step into our power and to own our power, and that means owning the shadow too. Yeah. So, I mean, you you mentioned that in the article that a lot of times we have these – they're illusions where the synchronicity is that this person's brought into your life to generate, you know – the it's the idea of fate and the one or that you know mm. your, your soulmate kind of thing but you know maybe this person is the train wreck that actually will deliver you to yourself <laughs> yeah or to the next train wreck if you don't figure it out i mean that's the thing is i mean you have to one of the approaches that is so ingrained in us is to take even our spiritual experience is in a kind of a consumeristic way so people come up to me all the time and they'll say, you know, Gary, what's the meaning of this synchronicity for me? And, and they want me to give them something that's like a, a little package for them. And on the one hand, first thing I say is, well, the fact that synchronicity happens at all means that, you know, we're in this world that is special and magical and, and that values our consciousness process on some level. And, and that, from that, you can say that on some level, the world loves us and, and, you know, uh, and the shadow's there too. So, you know, to just take every little synchronicity in a kind of a consumerist way where we say, oh, this is a blessing for me and aren't I special and this relationship's going to be special and, you know, putting it in this little ribbon and bow thing, it's like, no, there's a bigger play going on. I mean, I think one of the ways that you can look at synchronicity is, is to say that it's it's when you're in the movie. You're like, you're in the movie of your life now and this is one of the scenes in the life of your movie, but you don't necessarily know what the story is. You're, you're the character, not the author. You know? and, and so where is this going? We may not have figured it out. We may not be asking the right question. There, there's more unfolding. I mean, I think um, you know, the big insight with Jung, of course, is the unconscious. And so what's going on that we haven't figured out? You know, the unconscious really is unconscious. And so we can play out this riddle and be in a play and it can go on for 20 years or our whole life. And, and well, synchronicity can be kind of highlighting a motif throughout that. And, you know, it's stuff like that that I think, you know, just gets us in the game more. And, and you know, it's hard for the ego to step out of that. But then you're in things in a real way and it's imperfect and it's messy, but you're alive and doing your work. One of the things you mentioned a couple times is this idea of shadow, and I have a little familiarity with Jung, but one of the things that I did, I, I think it was the 2012 phenomenon that made me think about this, was um, because this uh, <laughs> Terrence McKenna's end of the world was happening on December 21st. I was thinking in terms of the tarot and that was the world card, like the end mm. of the world. But that put me in mind of, oh, what if the years took on this kind of uh, structural intention? And it doesn't, I, it, it was just an interesting focusing design, device. But 
2015, the 15th Trump of the Tarot is is the devil card. And so I've been thinking about this year in terms of that, the idea of mm. shadow integration. So it's mm. interesting that you would bring that up. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, there we go. Right. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, it was kind of a, it was kind of a rough year. Mm. I, I mean, I, th- I think it, you know, it certainly ha- had a lot of edge for me as well. So I know, what, I know what you're saying. It seemed like this summer was just the the kind of uh, where you have the two opposing sides. Um, mm. And I'm thinking about a lot of the racial stuff that was really coming out. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I hadn't looked at the year that way, but I think, you know, uh, and, and you can certainly what I, in that lens that you're saying, you know, I see it, it's not just shadow, but it's recognition of shadow. You know, it's actually seeing the shadow. I mean, I think the rev, the revelatory part for a lot of that stuff this summer, you know, would be that, uh, you know, a significant portion of uh, American society hadn't really seen that. And now they do. Um, so that's see, it's seeing the devil and seeing the devil in your own group, seeing the shadow in your own group. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm buying it, hmm. that metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's really great if we can just, you know, <laughs> I am not that, right? <laughs> right. We don't have to own any of the the darkness that we perceive to be outside of us. Well, we don't want to own it incorrectly. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 And that's another, that's for me, that's another one of these new agey things, right? Where everybody says every time you're triggered, it's something for, for you to figure out about you. Well, you know, there are people in the world that just suck and they go around violating and hurting people. And when you encounter one of those people, it isn't about you, you know? And, um, it's like, um, Rudolf Steiner had this, uh, saying that had to do with uh, initiation is uh, naming the things of the world by their divine authors. So we have to go through the world and actually use our discernment and discrimination to see shadow and light and health and unhealth and, and things that are good for us and things that are bad for us um, clearly. And I think that's, that's part of, you know, growing up and, and um, you know, the, sometimes it's difficult to deal with, um, the shadow and whether it's our own or other people's and, and navigating all that can be difficult. You know? Another thing that the new agey types, or, I mean, I don't need to generalize, but it seems like ego is one of these other difficult subjects as, as far as what we're supposed to do with ego. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where, could you walk us through your own relationship to what ego is? Yeah, sure. Well, the thing for me is that, um, that I think is not commonly understood is that ego is something that you can also have too little of. That there are people that are wounded in their ego and don't own the, themselves and their power. And that if, you know, very often, um, you know, folks that maybe had a bit of an imperfect upbringing or a little wounded, you know, may have that quality and not, not everyone that's wounded will have it that way. But there are a lot of people in the world that I think don't own, um, who they are enough and that the ego can be, um, you know, something we don't have enough of and therefore we don't set boundaries. We don't 
um, stand up for ourselves and we don't get what we need from the world. And I think um, that's as, as important, uh, you know, as it is for some folks to think about having too much ego. Uh, of course, that's really tough, you know, when you're dealing with somebody that's got too much ego, they tend to not want to uh, do any kind of self-reflection. But um, And we do live in an inflated world and a narcissistic world, and that's one of the big things I talk about in the book is that we're in a very inflated time, and uh, there is a sort of cultural inflation, which is different from our own individual psychological, you know, pluses and minuses. Before we get into the book a little bit, though, um, you mentioned something in the essay, and I'm trying to remember where where I saw it, but uh, the idea of like an inner an inner king and an inner queen mm. and the inner child. What, where does that come from? Yeah, this, that's archetypal nature. That's not in the Crop Circle book. That's in archetypal nature, which is a, a different project that I've been working on and been around that work for a long, long time. Um, and, and that comes from Tony Wolfe and Jung and, and the tradition in Jungian psychology of um, looking at the world through the lens of two, two binary oppositions. Um, one of them has to do with how we relate to people in the world and uh, at one end of that binary is the king and the queen, and at the other end um, is what we call the seeker, uh, which is really a combination of lover and child archetype. And at the king and the queen end of, of this way of being, um, you have those folks that are really connected to community, are really, they get their identity from the group. They're um, connected to society and society, societal values, usually, not always. Uh, they're associated with doing for. They're folks that really want to be of service. Um, and the other end, the seeker end, uh, is, consists of child and lover. And so it's about doing with another person as opposed to doing for. Um, it's about the individual versus society. It's about, you know, king and queen are about belonging and all the ways that belonging matters and is of value. Well, at the other end, seeker is about freedom from belonging. So you have the tension, an inherent tension there in our society between belonging and freedom from belonging. So you have kind of the, you know, Frank Capra, it's a wonderful life kind of sense of community and your connection to that. And, and you know, community is what will, you know, validate your life. And then you have at the other end kind of, you know, Jack Kerouac, Ken Kesey on the road and the acid tests and, and all of the, the individualist views of goodness. And, you know, I, I think um, archetypally what's important in terms of those two um, positions is to know who you are and to figure out which is your end and then to say, okay, this is who I am and own that for the good qualities and look at the shadow parts in it. Uh, and then understand the person who's opposite you and and recognize that they have a different value system and that they're coming from a different position. And, you know, maybe each side has something to, to learn from the other. But start with, you know, owning your archetype is one of the big things I do in the work. And there's another axis that goes the other way, but that's the king, queen, and the, and the child or seeker. Just in case some of our listeners 
have been under a rock or something. An archetype is what explicitly? <laughs> <laughs> well, an archetype is like a, your way of being. It's an unconscious story, an eternal story playing through your life. It's a pathway by which you find identity and fulfillment and satisfaction. And some folks find it one way and some find it another way. And Tony Wolf saw that there were these binaries in the human psyche, as I said, like between collective and individual. That's a big one in, in the archetypal nature work that I do. Uh, and another one is between uh, in the male form, between the warrior and the sage, uh, that goes the other axis, and that's how you relate to the world. And these archetypes talk about, you know, what's our, how do we get our deepest fulfillment? What really thrills us? What really, you know, blows our skirt up, as they say? What really gets us passionate? Um, and archetypes are like psychological gravity. Um, you know, there's there's a way that um, they that our experience bends in relationship to them. That one person's archetypal uh, inner core uh, makes us respond to experience in one way, and another person responds a different way. You know, it's the way that our energy flows through us. So some folks have a positive towards one thing, some a negative towards something else. So um, there, there are, in the greatest sense, of course, thousands of archetypes. So you, know, you can think about all the different motifs of the folklore world. But the work I do in archetypal nature is Tony Wolf saw this binary, and that has to do with um, these different ways of being. And we use the word archetype for that, different ways of being. Okay. And, and then did Jung make that up or <laughs> discover that? Well, I mean, Jung certainly popularized and brought the term archetype back into use. And, you know, he talked about the shadow as an archetype and the anima, which is our inner feminine, if you're a guy, uh, and the self, which is the energy that balances us out. And then he had, you know, thousands of archetypes in addition to that. So there were a few that were more primary and then a larger pantheon of them. And then what I do in archetypal nature is from Tony Wolfe. And Tony Wolf was Jung's mistress and kind of his psychic lifeguard. And when, when he went into his Red Book period, his confrontation with the unconscious period, where he thought he was losing his mind, um, Tony was there for him as, as his kind of psychic lifeguard and helping him out and later became a really powerful analyst and the first president of the Zurich Psychological Club, which was like the first institute. Um, and Tony observed this... A dichotomy in nature, this this binary opposition between these um, different pieces of us. So between seeker and the king, and between um, the warrior and the and the sage. But she observed it first in women, and she referred to the opposition be, being between the mother type and the what she called the hetera type, which is a word for Greek word for courtesan, and it refers to you know the individual focused woman versus the family or group focused woman. And then she had also the Amazon uh, versus the Mediatrix. And the Amazon is that outgoing kind of woman, uh, might be athletic, might be a businesswoman. Uh, but that is in opposition to the other archetype, which is the Mediatrix. And I think the Mediatrix is one of the things that I'm really happiest about to be able to talk about in my work because I certainly relate to that. It's a part of me. Um, it's not my primary archetype, but it's part of me. And there are so many women in the world that are medial women, they're mediumistic, they know, and men too, that know from a place inside them, irrationally, without a, a causal pathway, they understand some truths about the world. And 
if you don't have a positive cultural framework for that, you can think you're crazy living that way. So part of what we're doing in archetypal nature is giving a, a title and a position of respect to these different pathways that are living through us, but our society has denigrated some and overvalued others. Uh, it certainly does not have a place for the, me the mediatrix, the medial woman. And it certainly also overvalues mother, father, king, queen, and the, the seeker archetype, as we like to talk about it, or the hetera, as Tony Wolf talked about it for women. Those archetypes still to this day uh, are, are kind of put down a little bit. But that's a long story, but that gives you the, the history and the lay of the land there a little bit. Okay, and then as you were talking, I... I wanted to take just a, sh a small diversion because you were talking about Jung purposely going into the deep end mm -hmm. and he had a lifeguard with him. <laughs> mm -hmm. In our society now, we do something similar with, with drugs or entheogens. And w mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Oh wow, that's a big topic. It's, probably, it's pretty big. Gen generally, I'm you know generally I'm pretty in favor of it. Um, I think that there is a tremendous potential for for uh, constructive integration between the Jungian world and the shamanistic plant world because Jung, through active imagination and dreams, was was learning a a conscious language of connecting with this inner world. And then people are doing that and getting into the, the very deep end of it with plant medicines. And so I, I think there's such a fruitful dialogue that could happen there. And I certainly think people that are doing ethneogens uh, would find a much more useful dialogue with a Jungian therapist than with any other kind because we speak that language. I mean, you encounter the world of the unconscious and archetypes in full you know, technicolor in the you know, psychedelic experience. And that's a world that the unions know. Uh, so I think, you know, there's certainly risks and pitfalls, and I think it's a bit of a fad today, and I'm sure there's dangers, and there's all kinds of shadow in that world too um, that people should be cautious about. But I think, you know, in general, um, our time is very imbalanced towards the masculine in a, in a negative way, in an unhealthy way. And I think the masculine meaning linear methods, reductionist methods, um, the idea that none of this spiritual stuff exists, and then the feminine being the mystery of life, the miracle of life, um, all those curves of life, the inner world, soul, feeling, heart, and all of this plant medicine stuff and marijuana being, you know, Santa Maria, um, I think... There is uh, a tremendous need for the feminine, and I think, you know, Mother Ayahuasca and Santa Maria and all this uh, is very necessary for us in the same way that finding soul inside us in dreams and in active imagination and the inner, inner world um, and in the signs and meaning of our life and in synchronicity, that is very important. So we're, all of these are steps in the right direction, and they're, they're not without potential dangers, but it's a corrective for a society that's out of balance. Okay, so then crop circles Jung and the re-emergence of the archetypal feminine. So that's a <laughs> lot of interesting things. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it really, you know, it really boils down to a lot of the stuff that we've already spoken about here, which makes it easy to wrap it up. You know, I think the crop circles for me, I, I was surprised when I wrote this as a master's thesis a long time ago. Um, I was surprised no one else had done it because to me there's two basic elements in crop circles and they're crop and circles. They're the idea that this is a phenomenon that is in grain, it's in living plants. I mean, the plants are still alive in many cases. Um, you know, that is such a symbol of the feminine, you know, the goddess Demeter, the seed that goes in the earth and then is reborn uh, into the, in the miracle of life. You know, th that is the primary symbol of the archetypal feminine. And to have this mystery placed into that, I think, is so, so meaningful in a time that is so lost in the masculine, in these in this, you know, absolutely ludicrous notion that there's nothing going on that's conscious in the universe except humanity. I mean, what a tremendous inflation that is, the idea that the only consciousness in the world is human consciousness. I mean, you have to be very inflated to think that. And, and when you're that inflated, you can destroy your, your planet. Um, so then the other piece is the self, um, the circle, the mandala, the, that in us which seeks balance and harmony. So in this moment of archetypally masculine imbalance, we get this mystery in the feminine calling us back the other way towards, you know, considering uh, the deeper questions of life through that lens. And, and that's really the journey of the book is how do we approach mystery? How do we approach the feminine? What does it mean to have lost it? How did we lose it? And what does it mean to bring it back? And I think, you know, we're in this tremendously interesting time. And I, I think, on the one hand, you have these beautiful, light, kind of miraculous mysteries of crop circles and synchronicity and quantum physics that all show us the feminine and the mystery in life and the unity of masculine and feminine in a certain way. And on the dark side, you have everything that's happening to the planet and um, all those kind of things. But both of those connect us to the feminine. Uh, just one of them does it in a dark way where we have tsunamis and horrible weather and all the bad things and... And, you know, we also have this light pathway to, to get there and to do this psychological work of our time of recognizing these energies. And so I think, you know, that's, that's the journey we're in in our moment, and that's what I talk about in, in the book. Do you look into the actual material phenomena? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah the chapter one is, is the science. You know, there's, there's ten different categories of science that shows us that there's an authentic phenomenon in crop circles. There's physical changes to the plants themselves, bent nodes, blown nodes, things like that. There's germinal changes, how the seeds germinate if you put them in a germination chamber, changes with that. There's electromagnetic changes, there's biochemical changes. Um, there's a whole host of scientific evidence that shows us that something not only has been going on you know, in the 80s and 90s and into today when we think about it, but even going back into the 20s and 30s, there's reports that go all the way back. I include in the history section, I include a, um, a report from the Canadian Prairie in 1975 of folks going to a crop circle with um, a Geiger counter and finding really high readings. When we look back in the archival records, chapter two of the book is a history. And when we look at the archival records, there's a report from 1800 from a science journal talking about um, 
you know, this strange phenomenon. There's as far back as, you know, 1678 and 1686, we have reports that, that clearly show crop circles. So it's been going on for a long time. There's a real phenomenon there. And then the question becomes, how do we deal with it or fail to deal with it? How do we, you know, how do we, how, how full-bodied is our response to it? Are we dropping pieces? Are we having a shadow response? What's going on? And it really, folks need to give themselves a process with that mystery because it's really big. It takes a long time to kind of, you know, go around a few bends with it. But at the same time, it's this beautiful work of art. And I think when you spend time looking at crop circles, you know, you're going to be moved and you're going to feel something. And, and uh, you know, I, I think that's really important today. Now, I remember it seemed like it was something that was a topic of conversation a lot, but I, I haven't heard much discussion about it in the in the recent past. Are they mm -hmm. still occurring, or do you? Yeah, oh, they're they're still occurring. Um, you know what hap What happened was that you know there was this uh, this process that went on where um, there was a supposed debunking that never really took place. You know, they had a, uh, the story go around the world in the nineties that, you know, they would have been made by people. And that story got a lot of press and it looks quite obviously like a very, you know, one of the most obvious conspiracy, you know, things you could ever want to see. There's great movies you can watch about, about that. Um, part of it, that it's pretty clear that the British government, you know, uh, helped to, uh, or it certainly looks as though they helped to make sure that the story of the, the human, uh, crop circle hoaxers got big play everywhere. Um, and then so folks tend to believe that. And of course that's the same that reinforces the cultural bias that we already have that, that is this, you know, very sick imagination that human consciousness is the only kind of consciousness in the world. And and so those two things together kind of took it off the front page. But, uh, and also, you know, it, there haven't been as dramatic um, as they were, say, 10 years ago. But mostly it really has to do with just, you know, lack of attention and um, kind of the, the, that negative campaign that went out. So it's really up to people to, to do the work for themselves and look at it for themselves and keep it alive in their own way. Yeah, so it's, it's really fascinating that nature would create a mystery so that we again would begin to revere the mystery. Well, I don't know who created it. You know, I'm not even saying that nature did, did create it. I think, you know, it, it's certainly possible. I, th I think that there's some sort of other entities or beings of some kind involved or who or what they are. I have no idea. Uh, but, but on some level, the agency, the agent that's making them uh, may not, you know, it doesn't necessarily equate with the meaning um, you know, whoever's making crop circles is not, does not explain their meaning in their appearing to us in this way at this time. And we have to do that work ourselves. So, um, you know, uh, I certainly think it's important and valuable to think about who's making them, but, but their meaning to us, why now? That question is one that we have to each, you know, uh, take care of our, ourselves and in our own way and do our own work. In a really superficial way, it's interesting because it seemed there was this pop culture moment for the archetypal feminine. Mm -hmm. And do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just wondering if any of that like substance really kind of contributed to, 
you know, where consciousness through uh, Dan Brown was really focused on this idea of the archetypal feminine. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and a, and a lot of other phenomenon. I mean, the whole, I mean, Dan Brown's book comes out. He really wrote that at the height of a movement that was already going on around the Black Madonna. Um, you know, that movement was well underway and, and really going on and alive in the, in the 80s. And, um, you know, even before then, Jung was so excited in 1951 when the, the Vatican uh, announced the Annunciation of Mary because it was the beginning of bringing a feminine p- principle into their trinity. And he wasn't Catholic, but he just thought as a symbol for the world it was important. And, and that energy of, of that move came from the people. The people petitioned for that. And so there's a thirst for the feminine. You see it in the thirst for images of the Virgin in Central America. You know, there's a tremendous hunger in our culture for the feminine um, that, you know, that did have a peak, I think is continuing, um, but did have a peak around that time. And it's interesting that you connect the two in that way and that maybe that's connected to the, to the drop-off in our attention around it. But I think, you know, that hunger for that energy is, is ever more present in us. I think that we're in a generation and in a time today where people are really figuring out what that means to have that in their lives. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the, the flip side of the feminine, it, you know, the Latin word for mother is mater. And so the shadow expression of desire for the feminine is materialism, consumerism. Uh, and so it's so appropriate that, you know, on the, on the holiday that we have that's associated with the miracle of life, you know, Thanksgiving, that that holiday has become an orgy of materialist consumptionism. We can see how our connection and desire for the feminine is shadow. You know, we don't know what it would be like to, to actually have that energy in us and have a creative connection to the miracle of life and to the feminine and to the goddess and all of that energy within us. And so you see people having, you know, another brawl like they had, um, you know, Boxing Day here for, you know, consumer goods. It's, it's, you know, it's ridiculous, but that's what that energy, when it goes shadow, that's one of the ways we see it. And so you have a whole generation of people today that are thinking about what does it mean to live in a different way and what does it mean to not be hooked on consumerism and what does it mean to eat better and what does it mean to be in my body and do yoga and tantra and, and these, you know, ethneogens. And so I think in our time we're kind of sort of downshifting into how do we integrate this in a real active and living way. And some people are still acting out the shadow of it and, and we're at that moment where, you know, there's different inflections of that integration happening and different, different highlights that we can see happening in that. So now you said you wrote this as your master's thesis. I did. And was that at Pacifica? It was. Yeah. There's no, there's virtually none of the thesis in the book. I spent about four years after that, uh, really turning it into a popular book that would be readable for everyone. Um, so it's it was a thesis. It was done as a thesis, but that's the book is something completely different. There's literally about one paragraph. From the thesis in the book, so I did a lot of work afterwards. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because I I think uh, someone else who really valued the archetypal feminine's papers are at Pacifica. Yeah, Maria Gambutas. Yeah. Well, I, and Joseph Campbell too. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yes. Oh, yeah, I've used Joseph Campbell's I Ching. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it's it's tremendous. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love Joseph Campbell. And, and uh, you know, he was certainly interested in, in everything we're talking about. Yeah. So then... That's what you, you you were doing. What are you, what are you looking toward now? What are you working on these days? Well, I'm definitely going to do another um, webinar on synchronicity this spring. Um, probably something connecting to the the archetypal feminine, which is always a part of uh, my work, but maybe highlighting that a bit more. And then, uh, as you said, I'm going to be doing uh, introduction to archetypal nature on January 7th online, and you can register for that at the archetypalnature.com site. And then I'm going to be um, writing my first book on archetypal nature and uh, doing a, a big campaign, an Indiegogo campaign for that, starting at the end of February. And, um, you know, archetypal nature is really, I think, um, a big phenomenon that is just on the edge of our awareness. I hear comedians kind of making jokes about different uh, archetypes and stuff in there. You can feel that this energy is just about to get conscious in our society. So I'm I'm glad to be writing more about it. It relates to politics too, and and different qualities of left and right. And I think that's ultimately what I'll end up writing about down the road with with that. But um, so yeah, I'll continue to think about uh, this synchronicity and start really putting archetypal nature out there in a, in a real way too, which will be fun to continue that tradition that Tony Wolf started so long ago and keep it out there and make sure it goes on to the next generation. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. You've been listening to Gary Bobroff on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Information Hello. about his work can be found at gsbobroff.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, check out past shows, subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and remember, called or uncalled, the gods are present. See you on the other side.
forget the joke.